if you look at non-English languages, like say in Arabic, especially in some dialects, you know, when we talk about certain feelings, it is body focused. In the Khaliji dialect, there's, there's a figure of speech which describes either anxiety or being fed up by something. And it's like, you know, so my liver is nauseous. So, you know, when you're anxious, or you, you can sometimes feel nauseous, right? It, it can, there's a lot of heat, you know, going going on. Or like, I, I'd say in all the Arabic dialects, you know, when people say they're sad or they're bothered by something, they'll say, مضايق, right? I'm tight, right? That's a very physical sensation. It's like, what was that? It's very abstract. What is bothered? Right? But in Arabic, it's very concrete. Like, I'm, I'm feeling tight, you know, it's actually tight. <laughs> it's a physical tightness. Hello and welcome to Kun, The Journey to Be. I'm your host, Reem Shaheen, a counseling psychologist and the founder of Be Psychology Center. This is our last episode of season one. Our guest today is counseling psychologist Rima Bin Abbasi. Rima is with us today to discuss her journey with mindfulness and meditation and how she managed to include them in her daily life. Welcome, Rima, to the podcast. I'm really excited about having you. And actually, you're the first psychologist that I interview. And the reason I was really interested in interviewing you, because I've been obviously I've been following you on Instagram, and it really caught my attention, the work that you presented in, in the sense of really talking deeply about mindfulness and meditation and how that contributes to the mental health well-being of a person. But what I loved about it is that you presented the material in Arabic, which doesn't happen so often because we're not educated in Arabic. So it's hard for us to translate those terminologies. But what I'm really, really interested in is your story with mindfulness and and meditation. Because, I mean, every psychologist in the world will recommend that you do practice mindful and meditation on a daily basis. Research uh, speaks about the fact that 20 minutes of meditation a day reduces your anxiety by 70%, improves your sleep by 30%. Like really there's definitive research that supports the idea that mindfulness and meditation are the way to connect with the self, but also decompress from the stress of life and to lead a more balanced life. I am interested in your story with mindfulness. How did that happen? How did you, how, not only how did you incorporate it in your work, but more interested, how did you incorporate it into your life? Yes, no, thank you so much for having me, Reem. I mean, this is a great conversation. And, you know, before you invited me to, to your podcast today, I was thinking to myself, wow, it's been such a while since I last thought about how did I actually find myself in mindfulness to begin with like what exactly drew me to it like now it's become like a fad almost (laughs) Um, which has its positives and negatives but that's a whole other separate topic but anyway to answer your question as to how did I get into mindfulness so I think that the earliest memory I have was I would say be 12 or 13 years old and I, I didn't even hear the word mindfulness at the time but I remember that I was in my grandmother's house. And I remember that at that time, I, I, I don't quite know what exactly hit me that time, but I suddenly felt this deep wonder about the sun entering the window, 
and these specks of dust flying up in the air. And I was like, wow, you know, and I was just lost in that deep wonder and I was fully present with that. You know, I wasn't even aware about myself, my own thoughts, anything like that. I was just fully present with that. And that was one of few experiences that got me closer to spirituality in general. And, uh, you know, growing up in Dubai, so, you know, we're exposed to different kinds of media. And uh, so I was aware about um, yoga and meditation, but I didn't know much about it, you know, at that age. I didn't quite read much about it to really understand what they're really about. But it wasn't until my first year of university when I went to study in uh, Boston that I became exposed to mindfulness as, as a construct and, and as a practice. So I used to be active with the Spiritual Life Center in Northeastern University. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if you know about this, but the Spiritual Life Center has what's called the sacred space, which is basically a non-denominational room that anyone can go pray or meditate and relax regardless of what your religion is or if you don't even have religion like even just this general spiritual orientation can go to meditate and then practice mm-hmm. a very peaceful place you know and, and just beautiful and uh, they also used to teach mindfulness they used to we used to have interfaith uh, conversations and dialogues different things would happen in this space so through there I learned I, I got to formally practice mindfulness in a group and I remember how my first impressions of it were really powerful because it's so new to me the first thing I can remember though was the idea of focusing on my breath was so foreign to me I was like how the hell do you do that like what do you mean focus on my breath without controlling it you know I'm controlling my breath I'm looking at my breath I'm controlling my breath (laughs) so that was the part I could not connect with but I found it useful to combine other things that maybe focusing on my body maybe I'll uh, bring in aspects of my own religion into the focus you know things like that and it wasn't until very recently that I began to ease into focusing on my breath I'm, oh now I get it you know it's it's uh, I'm not thinking about am I breathing not breathing I'm just noticing what is there that was my first time being introduced to mindfulness and then studying psychology and especially counseling psychology my master's I learned even more about how it is applied uh, within the mental health field itself how do you define mindfulness for yourself like people Mm. I mean there are the scientific definitions anybody can can find that but what is your understanding of it I think that a lot of people struggle with just understanding what do we mean so what does it Mm. you So the way I understand it uh, is that it is a a way to observe our present experience, which can include our thoughts, emotions, body sensations, you know, our five senses, all of that are present from a distance with a compassionate eye. Mm -hmm. I think most people miss the compassionate, curious perspective that we're supposed to be looking at our experience because A lot of times, even within psychology, I think psychology is very guilty about this, actually. They kind of approach mindfulness as a mental exercise. Yes. You know, it's all mind, all logic, all brain, no heart. Mm -hmm. There's no heart, you know. But originally, you know, in the Western psychology, it took mindfulness from Buddhism originally. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about mindfulness, we're talking about the Western adaptation of mindfulness within Buddhism, Mm -hmm. typically. 
which has a very different cultural background, different ideas about about what it means to to have a self, what, what it means to practice spirituality, all of that. So, you know, in Buddhism, it's more of a heart-based practice. It's a practice to cultivate your heart, right? It's not a mental exercise in focus. You know, it's beyond that. It's about how can we cultivate this compassion, heart-based presence, and an expanded view of the self, not just connecting with yourself, but it's a view of self that is, it's, it's flexible, it's fluid. It's not about, you know, you're stuck in a certain identity or stuck in a certain way of being. You know, it's about interconnectedness, which is very different from how the West sees the self as being independent and being separate from everybody else. You yes. know, you have to, you know, be strong, be independent, you know, rely on yourself, whatever. But in Buddhism, it's more about how we're all interconnected. And actually, there are aspects of this philosophy within other religions too, you know, even within Islam. It's not fully foreign. Exactly. But not only that, it's what's even funnier is that Western psychology and Western science today is, mm. with all the research, is going back to the idea of we are neurobiologically wired to connect. We are not wired to be on our own and be individualistic. We've always been group animals or group beings and we exist in in a group and part of the reason why mental illness is on the increase is because of the pushing of the individualism and the mind rather than interconnectedness and the heart right uh, it might be worth clarifying for listeners not know what the word individualism collectivism means right yeah, and, uh, and lots, lots of us in there. I was gonna say <laughs> right, so what is your understanding of individualism collectivism since you brought this up you know it's more of the understanding that you not only that you live on your own that you are supposed to be self-sufficient mm. and to a large extent you are supposed to be able to take care of yourself but you're not, you cannot be self-sufficient because there we have emotional needs, we have um, socializing needs, we have, I mean, the pandemic showed us that, yes, you, you can have it all, but, but just not being able to see other people can really, can, can affect your, um, your mental health, not being able to hug other people can, can, can yeah. affect your mental health. So for me, the idea of individualism, it's that idea of, it's pushing that we need to be self-sufficient and 100% independent. I don't believe in that. I believe that we were here to support each other and we're here to connect with each other and to see, I mean, you leave a piece of you in everything and every person that you meet and that, that person leaves a piece of themselves in you. And, mm -hmm. and that's part of being alive and yes. the experience of being alive. So that yes, to me is, is very much the, the definition of, or my understanding of individualism versus yeah. connectivity. Yeah, yeah, I'd say I definitely fully, you know, agree with that. You know, like, I think like sometimes we may jump between one extreme of one versus the other. Mm -hmm. Like uh, there's one extreme where like, it's like, okay, you have to, you know, the figure of speech, pull yourself by the bootstraps. Yes. And I think a lot of people don't realize what that image really means. I mean, try to actually go down and try to pull yourself up from the straps of your shoes. Will you actually be able to stand up? No. Like, no, you cannot. <laughs> that is where that figure of speech comes from. But yet this very extreme individualism, which you described, it's kind of expecting us to do just that. And then we beat ourselves up when we're not able to do that. Mm -hmm. And that will just add to 
our own mental health struggles, you know, as, as it is. Then the other extreme where we, we don't even have any uh, sense of ourselves at all, like where yeah. we're just completely always sacrificing ourselves for other people at the expense of ourselves. Maybe there are some days we might actually need to do that, you know, but, but, but when that's always the case, it's not really sustainable because we cannot pour from an empty cup. Or as I tell my, you know, Arabic clients, we cannot pour from empty dalla, empty coffee pot. (laughs) As you're serving your guests, you have to retreat and refill your dalla and come back and keep pouring for your guests. So, so yeah. I feel like I I agree with the extremes and I feel like it's part of the reason why the world is struggling because we're given Mm. the option of those two extremes while actually what's healthy is finding a balance between those two. Mm. You need to have a certain level of individuality. You need to be... You, you, you need to be selfish and make decisions for yourself and not think that selfish is like the biggest yeah. wrong word that could ever be used to describe you. And at the same time, being able to maintain relationships with others and, and, yes. give, and a give and take because we yes. thrive on that. We thrive on supporting each other. I think just to link this back with mindfulness, you know, what's very funny with a lot of how mindfulness gets commercialized these days, yeah. you know, how it gets sold, how it gets sold to us, basically, these days, it's it's presented as a self-care. It's something you do on your own, alone, and that's it, you know? But originally, mindfulness was done in relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in all these spiritual traditions out there, uh, all these meditative practices were taught in the context of a relationship with a community, with a teacher, with somebody. It was never meant to be done on your own. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, even within psychology, you know, there's also research on teaching mindfulness in ways that's sensitive to people's traumas. And a lot of people, they may not know that they have a trauma or they know, but maybe they may not have made that link, I guess. And then they jump into mindfulness or meditation. And then suddenly all these things comes flooding in because in mindfulness, you are, you know, you're relaxing yourself enough such that you're allowing room for whatever to come will come, right? Even if it's things you've held back, it will come. (laughs) That's the idea. You're creating room for it. We're pushing it away. (laughs) We're creating room for it. That's the point of it, you know, like for you to develop compassion and curiosity about your inner experience and see things as they are, we're creating room for it. We're not pushing anything aside. But then as part of creating that room, you might be surprised by what shows up, which can unfortunately include traumatic stuff. Yes. So if you don't have a supportive relationship, such as with say a therapist, or maybe a meditation teacher who knows about these things, then we may be very unprepared and more traumatized mm-hmm. by what comes up, which is why the relationship is a powerful anchor. Yes. Uh, and there's also mindfulness practices that's meant to be done in relationship and not by ourselves. We're only exposed to the ones that are done solo, not the ones done in relationship with other people. When we spoke about doing this podcast together, I told you my, my story with um, the first time I, I ever did meditation slash mindful exercise. And it was in grad school and it was in class and I had a mini panic attack and, mm. and everybody like opened their eyes and we're talking about how amazing the experience was and how, 
and I'm the only one who this is this was the worst five minutes of my life and and felt that way and then when you brought up the trauma I was like yeah 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 I had just quit a job where for two years I was working with highly traumatized refugees so I was furiously traumatized so that's what that was what, what came up right away and and yes I see that I try as much as I can to prepare clients when I recommend that they do these exercises that sometimes it might end up being an unpleasant experience, but just to prepare them that exactly what you're saying, you're creating room for stuff to come up. So it's not always, I mean, we don't really suppress and push away good memories. Rarely do we do that. So whatever is being pushed away, it's, it's not necessarily pleasant. So when you allow that space, I mean, be prepared that maybe you're not going to be able to handle it all that well. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, for sure. I mean, it's, we don't hear much of that, you know, as I said, with, with, with this whole commercialization, yes. right? I mean, nobody wants to tell you what's the side effects <laughs> <laughs> to scare you off. <laughs> yes, yes, nobody wants to tell you that. In a class of 30 people, you might end up with with, with some feelings of anxiety. With Something, some right. that yeah. Really yeah. I mean, to some extent, it's to be expected. And it's okay if it's like one off. But uh, for me, my only caution, which I tell people, is if they're noticing that at a consistent basis, <laughs> and even a worsening mm-hmm. of that experience, then I encourage them to stop and to trust their inner wisdom. Because if I'm telling them oh no, you have to lean into the sharp ends, keep leaning into it. Then what I'm doing is I'm basically telling them, don't trust your intuition. Exactly. And that's not therapeutic, that's not healing. No. That's not mindful, in fact. And that is what probably has created the psychological struggles. The mm-hmm. fact that they disconnected from them, they, themselves, they're not, they're not tuning into what their body and their experience is telling them what is about what is pleasant. They don't trust themselves. And that's, mm-hmm. that's one thing I think that we all have in common with any client that we get is that is that disconnect from the self and just waiting for the world and society and everything to tell you what is right and what is wrong. Definitely. I, I completely relate to this. I think, uh, especially, you know, uh, here I've noticed that a lot of people, they may have uh, been exposed to an education where the teacher tells you what is right, what is wrong, yes. and you don't question things critically. And so for a lot of people, it's a very foreign concept to like, oh, how is this like in your experience? Like, what do you think about this? What aspects of this resonates with you and why? You know, it's like sometimes people look at me as if I have 10 heads when mm. I ask questions like that. <laughs> the way they respond to how that make you feel. What do you want me to say? And what's even funnier is that Back in the days, a million years ago, when I went to therapy for the first time, when my therapist told me, how did that make you feel? I used to repeat the entire story all over again. Like, (laughs) what do you want from me? Yes, yes. And then you learn, actually, how did that experience make me feel? So, but these are all things that you learn once you, you start practicing a little bit of meditation or mindfulness, as in because you open that space again for mm. you to just observe your experience and and, yeah. and evaluate, not even judge them, but just observe them for what they were. Yeah. Just by being able to, to, to understand 
What did you feel about it? What was your subjective experience of it? What, what was the interaction yeah. of the self? For me, mindfulness was very essential when I experienced depression, actually. I've had depressive phases. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, you know, depression plays all kinds of tricks, yeah. right? And uh, it can be very hard to spot if we're not mindful or present to notice, oh, this is a trick from depression. It's not reflection of reality, you know? Like we can tell this to ourselves like mentally, but it's not the same as when you actually embody it and know it inside you. You know it, you saw it, you observe it in the present, in the moment as it happened. So you know how to respond. It can be very hard to do that because like bring us back to therapy, right? Like, you know, we therapists, we cannot go inside people's heads and say, oh, hey, hey, here's depression playing its trick, you know? (laughs) So that's why this is a a useful uh, tool. But, But yeah, even therapy itself, it is mindfulness in action. Mm-hmm. Like, at least from the, you know, the, the therapist's point of view, right? Like, I mean, I think something Remy have told me earlier before our recording is that how, you know, for you, you experience each therapy conversation as mindful in of itself. Mm-hmm. Even though you're not sitting up in the mountain, closing your eye, you know, whatever. No, you're just sitting in a therapy session with another person who's sharing with you their experience and you're fully there, you're fully embodied over there. And that is a mindfulness in action Mm -hmm. right there. And even the way you're responding to what is showing up within you and what the other person is bringing up into the room, you're approaching it with curiosity and with compassion. That is mindfulness 101 right there in relationship. Yes, well, I think that, again, the, the, the Western commercialized version of mindfulness made us believe that it needs to be a conscious effort to make and, and not realizing that already, if you look at your life, there are some things that probably you're already doing mindfully. So how do you increase that? I've never thought of therapy sessions as a mindful experience but at the same time yes I I fully immerse myself because that's that's my training and and background but I've never I've never looked at it that way until we discussed it and and Mm. more and more I'm realizing yeah I mean I'm I'm very much in the moment and it's nice because it brings the client in the moment and, and that becomes something that they learn to experience and, you, and, and slowly, because you're modeling that compassion, you're modeling mm. what it's like to observe your thoughts, you're modeling what it's like to, yes. when you're talking about the depression, you're modeling what it's like for you to stop, stop and start asking yourself, so what is that voice that's telling, that's playing tricks or that's telling me all these negative things or is this me or this is the depression and really learning to separate yourself from all the other stuff that that's around you and all the other noise so that Mm. you can have an authentic experience but also you can have an authentic response to all of all of this yes yes how did it affect your life you know here's the funny thing right like even though mindfulness is something i'm very interested in Throughout all these years, I noticed that a lot of my, like, I would have these phases where I'm very disciplined in it. And when it comes to, like, the formal sitting practices, I mean, where I'm more disciplined in it. And then long phases where I'm not. (laughs) 
or maybe it's more of the what we call informal. And what I mean by that is, for example, if I'm walking, maybe being mindful of the first step I took. It doesn't have to be the full walk, right? Maybe I'm noticing one foot touching the ground, what that feels like, and then it lifts up what that feels like, and that's it, right? Instead of the whole walk has to be mindful, which is like an extra pressure, right? Yes. Or maybe um, uh, within a session, a therapy session, right? If I'm noticing my mind is starting to drift, I'm like, oh, drifting how's my body like check in I can gently come back you know and uh, I'm back in here so so in terms of the informal mm-hmm. kind of things I've been doing a lot of that and then this year I have been more I've been a bit more consistent as I've been taking these uh, classes online and I'm hoping to I've noticed that I, I do much better when when I am part of a community when I'm doing this within community so it's, it helps me feel more supported in my practice. So it's something I want to keep on going doing because I notice how much it, it improves my work as a therapist. Mm-hmm. I notice that when I'm doing it more often, especially the formal practices, mm-hmm. um, I notice that, um, you know, my conversations in the therapy sessions become more natural and organic. Yes. You know, I'm more responsive to what is arising in the moment, what my client is bringing in the moment. And my client even tells me that they feel more connected with me. Yeah. But I can see directly how, yeah, it does benefit quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But I'm less prone to over-preparing for the session. You're less, less prone to overthinking it. You know, I'm just there. Because often we get so tied down by what we read about, you know, what teachers taught us. And then that comes in the way. It comes in the way of us connecting with the client, connecting with the human being. <laughs> to the story it's very funny because i i recently started to supervise some people for their work supervision in in psychology means that someone experienced this kind of reviewing some of the cases of somebody who's less experienced so when they give me like the symptoms and everything and everything so what's the story what's the client's story and mm. you find that with beginners a lot is that they they're looking for the symptoms and how do I fix it <laughs> how do I apply and how do I do this and that's exactly what we're trying to say about being mindful is that in any job we're using our job because that's what we know how to do but in any job it's so stop focusing on the details and just look at take a step back and just watch mm. what's happening yes the larger picture the larger picture, the bigger picture, yeah. what is going on here? And, and what is this, what is the story? Whatever, wh- whatever is being presented, there's a story behind yeah. what is the story and, and allowing yourself to connect to that. And the idea of, of, of that is that the formal practices are very good and, and they help, but maybe I guess what you're trying to say to people also is that there's probably my, my informal mindful practices that you're already doing and you can start mm-hmm. with that and you can start with yes. increasing that and you'll see its effect you're talking about its effect on your work how does it do you feel like it makes a difference in your personal life mm-hmm. i don't want to go into the details of your life but yes yes how, how does it affect your relationships outside of work i mean you know as a human being right uh, we all have 
moments where you know we get hurt by somebody or maybe we get stressed or we get bothered by something that happens in our personal life or we get lost in our own stories our own personal stories yes about how things are supposed to be what's supposed to happen how I'm supposed to be feeling <laughs> that's a big story I think all of us struggle with not just clients even us in our own personal lives we also struggle with too and get lost in that so definitely the the mindfulness like the more I do it the, the faster I'm able to catch myself and to catch when those stories are being replayed and going into a snowball, mm. right? Because like so often, right, we get, we get lost in our thoughts, we get lost in our worries, you know? And like, I, you know, I come from a family that loved it, that worries so much. <laughs> More than one generation of uh, people who are constantly, you know, like worrying about things and chewing over what they're worrying about. We call elimination in psychology, right? We keep chewing and, and it, 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 it's an endless loop of worries that actually go anywhere. It's yes. just a loop of worries, basically. There's nothing constructive about it. We think we're solving something, but we're not. We're just repeating the same question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, question. I have to admit, my mind still operates that way. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I've found the magic pill for this, but... What I notice is with the mindfulness, I'm able to catch it faster. I'm like, oh, wait, I'm lost in that loop of stories. Okay, I can take a step back, come back to my body, catch a breath, and then I can know how to respond more intentionally mm-hmm. to those thoughts. Yes. You know, or maybe even distract myself a bit, take a break from them before going back and re-engaging from a more fresher place. But first, I need to be mindful to catch them. Mm-hmm. in the action otherwise i'm just unconsciously lost in that yes and it's very easy for us to get lost in our in, in our thoughts i mean we just as your heart is supposed to be beating your mind is supposed to be thinking yeah. so i think part of the misconception of mindfulness and meditation is the idea that i need to stop thinking you can't yes. do that you what you learn out of those practices is not to go with the thoughts. So this guy overtook the road or whatever. And instead of thinking, oh, he's wrong. Hey, how can you do this? Let me follow him. And going with that train of thought, how, how could he? Is just like, okay, that was unpleasant. Let's not go yeah. with this. This is my experience. Here's what it felt like. Exactly. Oh, you're good. Here is what I felt like. My body felt tight over here. Ah, okay. Versus the story and and judging the other person, you get lost in that narrative, in that interpretation, and that yeah. And based on your narrative, having the other person respond with their narrative, and just engaging in a in a in a unhealthy loop of uh, reactivity, rather than than just stopping and just observing what the situation is. So so yes, this is what you. To me, this is what it means to first do these practices but also what it means when you're trying to say to observe your thoughts to not go with it is that you just don't don't entertain it that much so Mm. you don't remember something from somebody who did you wrong two years ago and just rewind the story all over again i should have said and what they should have said and this is the opposite of mindfulness Exactly, yes. And that's yes. going to increase the negativity and the negative feeling and probably the negative behaviors. But if you're able to say, oh, maybe observe why this is coming up, why this story is coming up, why anything, and react to it in a different way, then it mm. becomes a more educated 
response yes. rather than just a reactive response. Yes, yes. To add a bit more heart to this, you know, there are types of mindfulness that are more compassion based. Yes. Where basically when you notice emotional pain, you know, deep kind of pain, or you notice suffering out there that is bringing up pain, like let's say maybe you're seeing a cat that was run over, you know, maybe you're hearing the news, what's happening, right, in the world. You don't have to go far, you just have to turn on the news. Right, exactly. So much pain happening out there, and we're all having these different uh, feelings and uh, thoughts about that, right? Mm-hmm. And like there are compassion meditation where it's like, you know, how we can embody and feel that interconnectedness without being consumed by that pain, because that pain can take us to all kinds of stories, all kinds mm-hmm. of thoughts, and hopelessness. But when we can be present with, okay, what's this pain like in my body? You know, how is it like to be together with others? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and feel solidarity with others, you know, like it's different than just thinking about it, mm-hmm. you know, but bringing more heart into that. It's, it's obviously not going to solve the other person's pain, but it can help us respond in a more intentional space. Yes. You know, it's, I see this as one tool among many. I don't believe that mindfulness is going to solve all of our personal or societal problems, but it's definitely an important tool in taking a step back assessing where we're at seeing where we're at you know and then responding instead of reacting as you were saying and, and just reacting out of habit out of bias or out of judgment we're responding more intentional open-hearted kind of space sometimes we need to have a mind wander yeah. like I, I write I'm a poet you know I have some poems that I have uh, published actually and one thing I can say is sometimes the wandering mind takes me interesting places. And so I, I, I'm not saying that the wandering mind is a bad thing, but it's just that we're so often busy and lost with our stress and day-to-day life that, you know, we're more often wandering than being present. So what I'm more proposing is how can we infuse tiny bits of presence here and there? Not about making your whole day every day. <laughs> Um, every month being present, that's not possible. I mean, not actually be healthy all the time. <laughs> yes. I think that the struggle and the need to push it in a more, the need to push mindfulness in a more uh, formal way, it's just because the nature of how our lives developed yes. and how we've developed as, as a species is that we lead a very past-based life. We're exposed to a lot of external uh, I don't know what to call it, but it's just uh, the external world is very busy and your, your mind is always distracted and activated by different experiences all the time and, and stimulus all, all around you. So the need to stop the wandering and to take a step back from, from all of this and just be in the moment and experience is important. And it is a practice. It's not the solution. It's just a practice to, to balance out how fast pace our lives have become. So, but at the same time, there was something that you kept saying in that, and I was really interested in asking you because of course mm. clients think, again, I think in the, in, in the sense of what my, how my clients respond to me when I yes. sit there and things is what, one of the things I swear they think I have four heads when I say it is <laughs> feelings in your body. Think about yes. how that feels in your body. <laughs> I've had reactions. Me too. Oh my God. I have four heads. 
<laughs> uh, t- 10 heads, four heads is modest. 10, 20 yeah. heads. <laughs> and I can understand why, I mean, in today's world, people don't understand what that means. Yes, yes. Like the hippiest thing that you could say to anyone. Yes. But it's not. But, but, yeah. Yeah, but you know what's very funny is if you look at uh, non-English languages, mm-hmm. like say in Arabic, especially in some dialects, you know, when we talk about certain feelings, it is body focused. You know, like I don't know how it is in your dialect, but in the Khaliji dialects, mm-hmm. there's there's a figure of speech which describes either anxiety uh, or being fed up by something or feeling disgusted by something or literally feeling nauseous. And it's like, chabdi uh, laya. You know, so chabd is kebid, which means liver. Loa uh-huh. is like nauseous. So my liver is nauseous. Uh-huh. Right? So, and you know, when you're anxious, or you, you can sometimes feel nauseous, right? It, it can, there's a lot of heat, you know, going, going on. Or like, I, I'd say in all the Arabic dialects, you know, when people say they're sad or they're bothered by something, they'll say, uh, Right, I'm tight. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm feeling tight, right? That's a very physical, That's you know, like sensation. Yes. Right. Um, English bothered is like what was that? It's very abstract. What is bothered? Right? But in Arabic, it's very concrete. Like I'm I'm feeling tight, you know, it's actually tight. <laughs> it's a physical tightness. <laughs> I think the other one in Arabic is also my heart hurts. There's an expression. Yes. 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 And I think it, it applies to most Arabic dialects where, yeah, yeah, that's why people don't, it's not that they don't understand, they're disconnected. Again, if we go back to mm. what we said at the beginning, where most of the time your work as a therapist at the beginning is to connect the individual to themselves because yes. they're so disconnected. I think because they are so disconnected, they don't know that when, they, when they're experiencing a feeling, they could actually sense it in their body. Exactly. Um, I, mean, I would also say that a lot of the people's exposures to psychology and self-development, you know, even for those who don't speak English, you know, like a lot of the Arabic content out there and, and, the, and the translated Arabic self-help books, you know, were translated from English, from mm-hmm. a more... Western cultural kind of uh, mindset, you know, yes. which, you know, sometimes might reinforce that that disconnection <laughs> between the mind and and the exactly. and the body, you know. So we may not really realize how, to some extent, our language has that mind body connection in mind, but we use it so habitually, we don't really think about it, mm-hmm. and then we grow up maybe in surroundings that don't encourage us to tune in. Mm-hmm. You know, and see what are we, what's our experience like? How are we feeling about this? What are we thinking about this? So we get more disconnected from ourselves, you know, as, as you're saying. But when you're talking about language and to, to the words and the experience mm-hmm. of what's being said, that's also a mindful practice. When you're really thinking about what is the experience that I'm trying to explain to you, what is, what are the feelings that I'm trying to relay to you about mm-hmm. what had happened? That is a mindful experience because you're really checking in with yourself in order to understand, in order to explain it to others. I remember situations where I would go online to look up, what is it that I'm feeling? Because none of these feelings are fitting what I'm feeling. Mm. <laughs> 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 
if other people have this, this, this experience, but, but it, and once you're able to find the word that, that defines how you, or, or explain how you feel, there's a little bit of a sense of relief. Like you're able to, you're able to explain it. You're able to express it, even if it's just yeah. yourself. So I agree with you. Language plays a big role in this, which, which brings us to, to what we discussed over the phone when we were preparing mm. for this is the idea that we want some content in Arabic, that um, the yeah. content out there of psychology, as you said, is translated most of the time, does not keep into account the culture and, yeah. and, and the whole history of the region. So does not bring into, so, so it doesn't feel applicable to them, to, to, to people who read it, doesn't feel like they can connect to it, even yes. if it's Arabic. And, um, and us uh, being on a mission of trying to spread some content in Arabic, like you do, and raising awareness in Arabic, and hopefully we'll do more of that. Hopefully. I mean, I'm definitely still far behind in my Arabic content, but it is a work in progress for sure. And I think it's, it's a challenge, I'd say, for a lot of us who have studied abroad for an extended you know, period of time, that then we're coming, it's, it's like we're, we're in the culture, then we left the culture for a while and we're looking at my distance, now we're coming back into it. It's like, oh, it's all so fresh and new and it, it feels again unfamiliar. <laughs> so it's, it's a journey for me, you know, but uh, I, I'm doing what I can do at this time. We all have to start somewhere and we, are, we, we yeah. don't all have to go all the way. I mean, we'll put a piece and somebody else will come and put another piece. Yes. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a work in progress, as you said, but it's all of our work in progress. It's not, uh, mm-hmm. it's not an individual thing. I think that um, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is people are always very confused. What is the difference between mindfulness mm. and meditation? And, mm. and how does that all link into yoga? Because everybody mm-hmm. put this, there seems to be a box where the, the, three, yes. the three practices are put together. And yes. what, so, so what is the difference between the three? Yeah, I mean, I see mindfulness as one type of meditation. Meditation is a broad category of of different practices that can be from different spiritual traditions or can be secular, you know, so it's a very wide thing, right? There's really no one definition of, you know, what is meditation because there's so much of categories within meditation. Mindfulness happens to be one among many types of, of meditations where mindfulness is more focused on, the here and now. I mean, there are some practices that might mix visualizing stuff with mindfulness, but mindfulness purely, you know, it's, it's just here and now, and that's it, you know? So it's very raw, the raw things of what you have right now, here and now. And then yoga is, uh, you know, comes from many different uh, Eastern religions. And many people think of yoga as only the movements, which is known as the asanas, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Sanskrit, if I'm not saying it wrongly, I'm not too sure. But the asanas are only one small aspect of what the rest of yoga is. Yoga as a whole is a much larger philosophy of a spiritual spirituality, a spiritual way of being, which includes asanas, it includes meditation, it includes breath work called pranayamas you know it includes how you how you show up in life your behaviors your actions your thinking you know so it's a very holistic 
approach. And it's not just the movements in Arsenal, it's not just the exercise as people think of it and the way it is being uh, sold to many of us. Do you think there's a, I mean, in the past 12, 15 years, there has been a lot of awareness and mindfulness and meditation became like psychologist's favor of the month yeah. and it was included in everything and there was, it became trendy. Mm. There's there's a side effect to mm-hmm. it so trendy and that this yeah. is um, confusing a lot of people. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I guess one side effect, which we already discussed, right, is that uh, when it becomes trendy, it becomes more commercialized, yeah. right? And because more commercialized, you know, people are less likely to tell you what are the side effects, what are the counterindications of uh, doing this practice, you know, when should you stop doing it, you know, uh, it might be, it might be presented in a very watered down way. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, maybe there are some benefits to the watered down way. I don't want to fully put that down, but then we also lose so much mm-hmm. as a result of a very watered down version, you know, of, of mindfulness as a whole, you know, so that's one of the side effects of becoming so trendy. And also I think you know, funny enough, when I start to bring up mindfulness to my clients, some of them may get so put off because of how trendy it is. Oh, okay, yeah. that's not a trendy thing out there. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I've right. seen that happen a lot. I think it's just becoming a trend and it's yes. extremely watered down in a way that, and it's fine for it to be watered down, but it the substance of it, the important piece of it, Mm-hmm. needs to needs to stay like for me one of the yoga as an exercise from the from the exercise point of it like the bodily movements and to me what they what this practice is is learning how to sit with discomfort there's you you'll never be comfortable in a warrior position it's it's physically <laughs> uncomfortable but then if you learn to sit with it, it's, if you learn to sit with physical discomfort, yes. you also learn to sit with emotional discomfort, mm-hmm. which is you learn to sit with the pain of some of the experiences that we have instead of pushing it away and instead of it coming back as mental illness a couple of years later. So they all link into each other in a sense, in a way. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, no, I agree with you. So, so what would be good resources for people who are trying Mm -hmm. to go into these practices and trying to include them into their lives but not from the trendy perspective more from essence of of what these practices are supposed to give you as a human being oh that's a really big but important question and unfortunately there aren't many good resources like that because a lot of what is publicly accessible are those that are more watered down, right? I mean, I could definitely offer resources from a more Western psychology perspective, right? But again, I can argue those are also watered down, you know? But but at least there are some benefits, you know? So I don't want to fully dismiss them, but they can be good entry points, I think, if you want to do something more serious, you know, then then uh, then that I'd recommend reading more into the spiritual traditions from which these practices come from. You don't have to agree with them, but I think it's worth understanding for yourself what is the philosophy of these come from, and then you 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 see you know what aspect you've noticed resonate with your own life, right? Mm-hmm. But I think for starters, 
UCLA, they have uh, a lot of free audio mindfulness resources that's open to everybody in English. And then uh, there is also Berkeley. Oh, I forget the name. I think Berkeley has a mindfulness center. I just cannot remember the name right now. Yeah. But maybe in your podcast notes, I can send you the, you will add the, the, name, add the link. Yes. Yeah. That is another one. And a third one that has a bit more from a Buddhist psychology perspective, but they're not imposing Buddhism on you per se, but they come from a more Buddhism perspective, is called the Daily Sit. And so every day uh, for free, they have a live meditation and Dharma talk at the end of each meditation. But this is more intensive. So probably better for someone who has had some exposure, mm-hmm. you know, to, to mindfulness. Headspace, I mean, I know it's a commercialized version, but it can be a good in, I think, for people who are just starting off. Same with Insight Timer. It's an app as well. Insight Timer is free, mm-hmm. whereas Headspace, it's free for a bit and then you have to pay after the trial period. But Insight Timer is another um, good one. Mm-hmm. Trying to think if there's any other ones. There was one in Arabic that I found mm-hmm. uh, based off of Australia, actually. I think it's a psychologist who's based in Australia and she has her own free audio recordings of mindfulness in Arabic and they're actually very well done. These are very useful resources. And maybe this will, will be encouraging for some people who are interested in yeah. starting to develop some content in Arabic about these practices yes. that definitely a need for it. Yes. There's actually one last resource which I only recently found out about, but I never tried it myself. It's also from a Buddhist perspective, but it's about applying mindfulness in relationship, in conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's online. They have a lot of, I think, free content also online called Insight Dialogue. So I can share the, the link uh, to this uh, as well. well. We'll post all the links to the, to the episode so that people have resources if they are interested and if they want to explore more. I'm really thankful for you to to have given your time to this episode. I really appreciate it. It's been, for me, of course, it's, uh, I really enjoyed it, but I also learned a lot because um, again, mindfulness is not really my field of expertise. So I was really interested in, in, in your take on it and how you've experienced it and maybe giving some information as to what to expect when you're when you're having when you're including those practices in your life rather what's out there which can be sometimes an unrealistic expectation thank you so much Fim. this was an amazing conversation and also I find that with your own responses and the way you ask your questions you know it was also helpful for me to revisit some of what I learned and, uh, you know, find some new and old connections that I haven't seen in, in quite a while. So it was also refreshing, you know, for me to take part in this conversation. That's great. Well, hopefully, in, uh, I mean, hopefully we'll do one in Arabic one day when we both uh, can, can, can improve our psychological terminology in Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Shama. <laughs> Have a great day and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Reem. You take care. Okay. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're listening to this podcast and you or a loved one are struggling with some of the symptoms mentioned in 
some of the episodes, please reach out to professional help. Feel free to email me for recommendations and referrals. My contact details are mentioned in the description. This is our last episode of season one.